Friends, welcome to worship on this Tuesday morning. And we say, even on a rainy and cloudy day, that this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. We are delighted this morning that Dr. Paula Owens Parker will be joining us as our guest speaker and preacher this morning, and she will join us by Zoom later in the service. Let us begin our time of worship as we stand and sing hymn number 27. Join me in a unison prayer. Together, 
Shepherd of Israel, hear our prayer. As your son heard the plea of the criminal crucified with him, gather into Christ's holy reign the broken, the sorrowing, and the sinner, that all may know wholesome joy and forgiveness. reading from Ezekiel 34, 11 through 17, and verse 31. For thus says the Lord God, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As shepherds seek out the flocks when they are among their scattered sheep, so I will seek out my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places to which they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the watercourses and in all the inhabitant parts of the land. I will feed them with good pasture and the mountain heights of Israel shall be their pasture. There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and they shall feed on rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I will make them lie down, says the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injury, and I will strengthen the weakness but the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them with justice. As for you, my flock, thus says the Lord God, I shall judge between sheep and sheep, between rams and goats. You are my sheep, the sheep of my pasture, and I am your God, says the Lord God. A reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25, verses 31 to 40. <clears throat> when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate people one from another <clears throat> one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will put the sheep at his right hand and the goats at the left then the king will say to those at his right hand come you that are blessed by my father Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. 
I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food, or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you, or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these, who are members of my family, you did it to me. The word of the Lord for the people of God. to introduce today's chapel speaker who will be joining us virtually, Reverend Dr. Paula Owens Parker, who is the program associate for the Katie Geneva Cannon Center for Womanist Leadership at Union Presbyterian Seminary in Richmond, Virginia. Dr. Parker is also senior program developer of Roots Matter, LLC, the creator of Rafa, A Course in Contemplative Healing Prayer. She is a spiritual director and a certified facilitator of emotional emancipation circles, 
originated by the Community Healing Network. Dr. Parker holds a BA in Sociology from Fisk University, an MDiv from Union Presbyterian Seminary, and a Doctor of Ministry from San Francisco Theological Seminary. She is an advisory board member of the Spiritual Directors of Color Network and a presenter for the North Carolina Institute for Spiritual Direction and Formation. This year in our Formation in Ministry class, we have appreciated engaging Dr. Parker's book, Roots Matter, Healing History, Honoring Heritage, Renewing Hope, which recognizes the impact of generational trauma in the African-American community. Dr. Parker has also contributed articles to Healing Line, Christian Century, and Interpretation, a Journal of Bible and Theology, and has chapters featured in Kaleidoscope, Broadening the Palette in the Art of Spiritual Direction, and forthcoming in 2022, Walking Through the Valley, Womanist Explorations in the Spirit of Katie Geneva Cannon. Dr. Parker, it is our sense in having interacted with you that you are doing the work your soul must have, and we look forward to hearing from you today. Thank you for being with us. Thank you, Dr. Beth Bexler, and thank you, Courtney, for inviting me to speak to this chapel service. I bring you greetings from the Katie Geneva Cannon Center for Womanist Leadership at Union Presbyterian Seminary in Richmond, Virginia. Dr. Cannon, for whom the center is, is named, was the first African-American woman to be ordained in the Presbyterian Church USA in 1984. And she was the Annie Scales Rogers Professor of Christian Ethics at Union from 2001 until her untimely death in 2018. Dr. Cannon named womanism as a powerful approach to recognizing the human dignity and, um, and amplifying the long ignored voice of black women in a hostile world. She wrote that one soul has work that is vital, not only to the health and strength of the community, but is integral to our fulfillment as individuals. This sermon speech is dedicated to her and all the black women past and present who were and are called with their unique gifts and graces to create a vitalized and healthy community for everyone. Let us pray. Startle us, O oh God, with your truth. Open our hearts and our minds to your wondrous love. Speak your word to us. Silence in us any voice but your own. Be with us now as we turn our attention to you and help us hear your word in a new way that will give life. In Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen. Dr. Cheryl Kirk Dugan wrote in her book, Refiner's Fire, quote, to know who you are and what you are and to whom you belong is to embody, express, and incorporate the divine good to be clear about what is the state and, and the cost and benefit of the prize of total grace and freedom, end quote. The more we know about our history, the more we understand the life we are living now. 
if we take the time to stop and review the past, it will often explain what is currently happen, happening and assist us in making better choices for the future. Today, I want to take a few minutes to talk about a portion of history that I found liberating and validating. A bit of history that for me proved history can answer questions and provide solutions. I want to talk about the origins of womanist theology that was created, created in 1985 and how it gave a theological name to the Black Women's Club Movement era from 1890 to 1930. In 1969, while the riots were raging in New York City, James Cone wrote A Black Theology of Liberation. He wrote about how Black folks' interpretation of scripture is different from the interpretations of white men. Published in 1970, it was groundbreaking. It was the first systematic analysis of how and why Black people's biblical interpretations and beliefs are different, but not deficient. In 1973, Mary Daly, an Irish Catholic, wrote Beyond God the Father, which challenged how women interpret the scripture and how it is different from the interpretations of men. She was one of the founders of feminist theology and one of the first to advocate for the ordination of women. This was Dr. Katie Geneva Cannon's religious and theological environment when she graduated from Johnson C. Smith Seminary in Atlanta in 1974. That same year, Dr. Cannon entered the PhD program at Union Theological Seminary in New York, along with other black women, Dolores Williams, Jacqueline Grant, and Emily Towns. Dr. Cannon and her sister sought out their black brothers to join in the black liberation theology movement. However, the men dismissed their perspectives and experiences because they were women. So they sought out the feminists and found that white women did not accept them because they were black. Neither group took them seriously. Their experiences as black women were considered irrelevant and inconsequential to both white women and black men. Dr. Cannon gave the label womanist to the theology that considers the life experiences of black women and their concerns for themselves, their families, and their communities. Alice Walker coined the term and defined it in her book, In Search of a, My Mother's Garden. The term is derived from womanish, uh, opposite of girlish, a black folk expression of mothers to female children, you're acting womanish or like a woman, usually referring to outrageous, audacious, courageous, or willful behavior wanting to know more and in greater depth than is considered good for one, interested in grown-up things, acting grown-up, being grown, interchangeable with another Black folk expression, you trying to be grown. A womanist is a Black woman who appreciates her culture, emotional flexibility, values tears as a natural counterbalance to laughter and strength. She is a woman who is committed to the survival and wholeness of an entire people. A womanist loves music and dance, moon, the moon and spirit. She loves love and food and roundness. She loves the struggle, loves her people and herself regardless. Womanist is to feminist as purple is to lavender. In Matthew 25, Jesus tells the righteous they will be blessed because when he was hungry, they 
When I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was a stranger, you invited me in. When I needed clothes, you clothed me. When I was sick, you looked after me. When I was in prison, you came to visit me. The righteous were puzzled and said to him, when did we do that? And he replied, whenever, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. A womanist is a black woman who has developed survival strategies despite her oppression to take care of her family and her people. She takes injustice seriously because of her own experiences at the intersection of racism, sexism, and classism. A womanist operates out of the least of these theology, a theology that requires one to love God, self, and others. Theology is what you believe about God's interaction with the world, self, and others. Ethics is what and how you act out that belief. The least of these theology embodies a God who cares for those who want, need, and desire love and compassion. Womanist ethics embodies a God who cares for those lost in the quagmire and consequences of social and economic immobility, poverty, inadequate education, housing, and healthcare disparities. The least of these theologies embodies a God who cares for those overworked and underpaid. Womanist ethics embodies a God who cares for those who have become weary and disheartened and engage in self-destructive behavior. The least of these theologies embodies a God who cares for those who watch their jobs disappear and are forced to make hard choices to help their families survive. Womanist ethics seeks to discover, analyze, and honor the lives and gifts of those who are forgotten and dismissed. Womanist ethics embraces a message of hope and transformation. It celebrates the Imago Dei, the image of God in all persons. The history of enslaved Black women in America reveals abuse, exploitation, separation, and suffering. These enslaved Black women created survival strategies despite oppression and marginalization in order to save their families and their people. Despite their horrific circumstances, they used their resources of spirituality, biblical imagery, music, African traditions, mother wit, and language to survive and protect themselves and speak the truth. The insular character of slave life strengthened the importance of the community they had inherited from their African ancestors. Enslaved women created a support network to share life responsibilities like childcare and healthcare and religious ceremonies. This interdependence created a strong network among black women that extended into life after slavery. After the emancipation in 1863 and the Freedmen's Bureau dissolution in 1877, many Northern philanthropies withdrew their assistance, forcing the Southern black communities into autonomy with no resources. Out of necessity, black women rose to the challenge using their instincts and mother wit to create the institutions desperately needed within their communities. They joined together in clubs and societies and associations to face their newfound freedom and forge their way into the white male dominated world. This period in history, which some identify as from 1890 to 1930, 
is referred to as the Black Women's Club movement. The overarching aim of Black women's clubs was to elevate the social standing of their race through per personal betterment. The, charter, the character of these clubs ranged from benevolent to literary societies. The more radical women's groups spoke out against lynching and sexual abuse. Some of the more familiar leaders who were part of that movement were Harriet Tubman, Mary Church Terrell, Nanny Hughes Burroughs, Anna Julia Cooper, and Mary McLeod Bethune. Together, these women, while they defied negative stereotypes, fought for reform and sought to uplift one another. The event that marked the beginning of the movement was the emergence of the National Association of Colored Women's Clubs, NACW, in 1896. The NACW predated the formation of the National Association of, for the Advancement of Colored People by 15 years. The early establishment of the NACW illustrates the firm conviction of Black women to serve their community. The significance of the NACW is not to be underestimated as it afforded a rallying cry and a network of support for the female Black community across the country. In 1897, Mary Church Terrell, the first president of the organization, addressed the, her members stating, we have become national because from the Atlantic to the Pacific, from Maine to Gulf to the Gulf, we wish to set in motion influences that stop the ravages made by practices that sap our strength and produce the possibility of advancement and preclude the possibility of advancement. We call ourselves an association to signify that we have joined hands one with the other to work together in a common cause. We proclaim to the world that the women of our race have become partners in the great firm of progress and reform. We refer to the fact that this is an association of colored women because our peculiar status in this country seems to demand that we stand by ourselves. Our association is composed of women because the work which we hope to accomplish can be done better by the mothers, wives, daughters, and sisters of the race. Dr. Cannon defined womanist theology in 1983. She echoes the words and actions of Mary Church Terrell. If we substitute in her quote, this is an association of colored women with this is a theology created by black women, it reads like this. We refer to the fact that this is a theology created by black women because of our peculiar status in this country seems to demand that we stand by ourselves. As I said earlier, I believe that more, the more we know about our history, the more the present makes sense. If we understand our past, we can make more desirable and valuable decisions for ourselves and our generations, future generations. For example, when I worked in the nonprofit world, one of the conversations that consistently surfaced was why it was so challenging to engage African-American churches to partner with nonprofits. As I learned more about the Black Women's Club movement, I realized that one part of the question is answered because community work was embedded in the lives of the women who did not necessarily worship in the same church, but they had the same theology, the least of these theologies, womanist theology. 
Mary Church Terrell would express it beautifully. We must take care of ourselves and rear our families like all women. We have more to do than other women. Those of us fortunate enough to have education must share it with the less fortunate of our race. We must go into our communities and improve them. We must go out into the nature and change it. Above all, we must organize ourselves as Negro women and work together. Theology is what you believe about God's interaction with the world and self and others. Ethics is what and how you act out that belief. The oldest active Black Women's Club in the United States is the United Order of Tents, headquartered in Norfolk, Virginia. It has been active for 153 years and older if you consider the participation of the founders, Annette Lane and Harriet Taylor, using their midwife privilege of mobility in the Underground Railroad. The mission of the tents before the Civil War was to help free enslaved people. The word tents refers to the actual shelter escapees sought on their path to freedom. After the Civil War in 1867, they founded this Christian Black women's organization. Its mission was to clean, feed, and provide nursing care wherever possible. Annette Lane taught the young ladies about Christianity, cleanliness, morals, conduct, and various means of survival as free human beings. In 1897, 30 years later, the founding chapter in Norfolk, Virginia, Lydia Number 1, established Rest Haven Home for Adults in Hampton, Virginia for their aging members. When the members of the tents did not fill the 16-bed facility, they took in other men and women in need. For over 105 years of operation, Rest Haven, subsidized by donations from tent members, was debt-free upon its closing in 2002. Today, the tents have housing for el the elderly in Rocky Mount, North Carolina, and in Norfolk and Danville, Virginia. This story has a personal significance for me, an example on how knowing your history can change your life in, very, in a very subtle but far-reaching way. Both sides of my family are from Chesapeake, Virginia, formerly North County. And from a historical perspective, most of them did not migrate north, therefore making it easier to retain family history. My mother's family, the Cuffeys, Cassells, Wilsons, Denbys, Overtons, and Hodges, held a family reunion in 2014. Walking back from the family cemetery, a cousin told me that members on my mother's side were charter members of a tent chapter in Norfolk. I had learned about the Black Women's Club movement a few months earlier, and I knew both my grandmothers were members. I mentioned this to my sister, Patrice, the genealogist in the family, and she gave me a 1991 church program of an annual celebration of that particular tent chapter she found among my father's papers. From that program, I found out that in 1896, Elizabeth Harris Cuffey organized the True Love Tent Number 37, along with her four sisters, Sophie, Josephine, Hester, and Julia, five sisters. The founder of the tents, Annette Lane, installed the officers. One of them was Hester, my great-grandmother. I started the Daughters of Zalofahad, a transitional housing program for homeless mothers and children in 1998. It was named after the five sisters in Numbers 27, 1 through 11. 
I had no idea I was continuing a legacy started 102 years earlier by my ancestors. Would it have made a difference if I had been aware of the Black Women's Club movement and my great-grandmothers and her sisters when I started the Daughters? Yes, it does make a difference to know I am a part of history and legacy that began with enslaved and free Black women. And what can I make of the coincidence of five sisters? There were over 300,000 free women in clubs in the North in 1930, many documented. Because of the slavery in the South, there was little recording of their history, especially local history. Dr. Cannon had two sayings she would often repeat to her students. If it isn't written down, it doesn't exist. And second, when an elder dies, a whole library burns to the ground. She urged us to write it down, whatever it is, so the story would not be forgotten. I will close with a story and an addendum. Ada Harris was an educator in Indianapolis. In a 1909 Indianapolis Star article, it heralded Harris as the leader of the reclamation of Norwood, a small, impoverished, all-Black settlement situated on the outskirts of Indianapolis. The settlement acquired a bad reputation from the crop games and the prostitution rings that allegedly flourished in the area. Harris, well aware of Norwood's shortcomings, nevertheless moved into the community. She had taught school in the area since the late 1880s. By 1909, Harris was not only a resident of Norwood, but the principal of the local school. She insisted that her greatest ambition was to serve her people. She explained her inspiration by, for organizing by saying, I want to see my people succeed. I want them to have an equal chance. And this is the addendum. On January 15, 2022, 37 Black women founded a new chapter of the National Coalition of Women in the, in the Chesterfield metro area, which is where I live now. In an interview last month, the founding president, Carolyn Glenn Etheridge Harrington, made this statement. Our goals are to grow and thrive, reaching out and assisting with the needs of our, our communities. I believe that Black women in Virginia are strong, determined, highly motivated, and influential. My top goal as president is to establish programs and projects that will offer our youth and women the opportunities they need to be successful in life. Both of these women illustrate unique forms of individual giving and self-help leadership provided in a local community. Black women live at the intersection of racism, classism, and sexism. And despite our peculiar status in this world, we were and are womanists who love and commit our lives to the wholeness and survival of our people. Theology is what you believe about God's interaction with the world, self, and others. Ethics is what and how you act out that belief. Jesus told the righteous, they will be blessed because whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, 
you did it for me. Amen. Thank you, Dr. Parker, for that inspiring message. And as we respond in prayerful faith, I will invite you into an exercise where we will sit in silence and yet breathe and be conscious of our breathing. Dr. Parker has clarified for us, solidified for us, the connection between theology and ethics. And so in this time of silent reflection, I invite you to breathe in God's nature and breathe out justice and compassion. Breathing in God's nature and out justice and compassion. One final breath in of God's nature and breathing out justice and compassion. Thanks be to God. Last week, our speaker, part of the Augsburger Lecture, Dr. Nancy Bedford, talk to us about how the word evangelical is one that she has had to not give up, but simply put on a shelf, hoping to retrieve it after it may escape some of what our culture says about the word evangelical. But today, I'm going to invite us to take that word off of our shelves as we speak this confession of faith together. True evangelical faith. There are parts that we will read together, and then part one will be this side. Part two will be this side of the chapel. Those who are at home may choose either one. True evangelical faith cannot lie dormant, but spreads itself out in all kinds of righteousness and fruits of love. It dies to flesh and blood. It destroys all forbidden lusts and desires. It seeks, serves, and fears God in its inmost soul. It clothes the naked. It frees the hungry. It comforts the sorrowful. It shelters the destitute. It aids and consoles the sad. It does good to those who do it harm. It serves those who harm it. It prays for those who persecute it. It teaches, admonishes, and judges us with the word of God. 
It seeks those who are lost. It binds up what is wounded. It heals the sick. It saves the strong. It becomes all things to all people. The persecution, suffering, and anguish that come to it for the sake of the truth of Christ have become a glorious joy and comfort to it. Amen. We're going to switch up the order here at the end, and I'll go ahead and announce our chapel service for next week. We invite you back here as our campus pastor, Kevin Clark, will be leading us in Holy Week meditations. And this morning as we go forth, we will sing Longing for Light, and then our benediction will be a brief visual liturgy, so you are invited to stay and receive that gift this morning. Let us stand as we sing hymn 715.